All right, so the text today, Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. Hear the word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of God. So it's a serious, heavy section. And I started off with asking you guys, how many of you here have been rejected? You do not have to show a sign of hands. <laughs> but I know that I have been rejected many times, most all of them of the fairer sex. <laughs> and there's one, there's one rejection that stands out in my mind. And I'm not really sure why, because I remember nothing about this woman. I don't even remember her name but she was my simulator partner in undergraduate at Metro State. And an undergraduate pilot, when you go to aviation college, they make you take these simulator classes. And the pilots here are familiar with this, but they're these really old piece of junk simulators that don't have a screen and you learn basic attitude instrument flying skills. And they partner you up with another student. So it's kind of like the blind leading the blind in a simulator with no screen, which is also blind. And I was probably 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. I was sitting next to this this woman and she seemed really nice and she seemed interested because she was my sim partner and I think she had to be interested. And so I got up a bunch of courage to ask her out. And for you kids, back in the old days, there wasn't text messaging because nobody had cell phones. So you had to talk to human beings face to face. It was, there was huge risk in this. So I got all this courage up to ask this girl out and we got outside the aviation building and I asked her out and she most certainly told me no. I think there was something about her having a boyfriend and that she was exactly not interested at all in me. And so that sticks in my mind. There's a rejection that's there. And maybe this has happened to you or maybe you've done the rejecting yourself. And maybe it's not about relationships, but maybe you rejected the faith that you grew up in or a particular tradition that you had from your parents or your family or friends. Uh, we see a ton of rejection right now in cancel culture. This idea of canceling people and turning our backs on them and rejecting them. The idea of rejection is the concept of actively refusing something. When we reject it, we make a choice to actively refuse it. We refuse to consider or accept the thing that we are rejecting. We effectively just turn our back on it. It's no longer part of our life. And so rejection is nothing new. 
we all have either been rejected or done some rejecting ourselves. But rejection is going to be the focus of what we're really going to dig into in this passage today. Last week, we spoke about accepting Christ and then the assurances that we have because of our acceptance for Christ. So it only makes logical sense that if there are assurances with accepting Christ, there must be consequences if we reject him. And so after 25 verses in this beginning section in chapter 10, discussing Christ's ultimate sacrifice for all who believed, and then the assurances that come from having faith in him, the author digs right in and tells us what happens if we continue to live in sin. And it may be one of the most serious passages that we're going to come across in the Bible, because the, uh, the consequences of this, of this rejection, are life-altering. So verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And I really want to spend quite a lot of time right here in verse 26 before we look at the rest of the passage, because this verse can and actually should catch us all off guard. Because it's a warning. It's a very direct warning. And it should probably have us all question our salvation when we read that. If we go on deliberately sinning. And I think that's actually a good thing. And so before everybody stands up and leaves and runs away, just, just hear me out. If you have saving faith in Jesus, you're saved forever. We call this the perseverance of saints. The concept means that God does not remove his blessings from those who have turned their faith over to him. You do not fall out of salvation with God. So then what does this verse and then this whole section here actually mean? And what it's going to point us at is the concept of apostasy, the, the, the intentional rejection of God. And if, you, if we look at that, that verse in verse 26, it says, if we go on sinning deliberately. And I want to focus on this word deliberately, which is used. And in some translations, you'll see the word willfully used. If you actually look at the Greek word itself, I know most of you go home and you reread all this in Greek so that you can get a, like a little bit of a deeper meaning. The Greek translates to intentionally. And so the crux of this, of the rejection of God or, or apostasy, which is a just a term for formal religious rejection, right, is this idea of intentionality. But he uses another qualifier. He says, if one has received the knowledge of the truth. So what does that mean, if one has received the knowledge of the truth? So what this means is that the apostate Christian, at some point, received all of this information, right? The, the one who was re rejecting it had first received and accepted the knowledge of the truth. Because there's intentionality that is here. And so somebody who has received this knowledge of the truth means they probably at some point even maybe made a public pronouncement of faith. They may have actually said, I believe in these things. They've claimed at some point to be a Christian in name. They've made that pronouncement, right? They have a knowledge of the truth. And then they intentionally sinned, intentionally rejected what they knew to be true. They intentionally turned their back. This is a huge difference from unbelief. What one commentator said as I was studying this said that all apostates are unbelievers, but not all unbelievers are apostate. That makes sense. The different, this is different than questioning faith or growing in your faith or struggling in your faith or having doubts while you're in faith. This is a direct rejection of truth that you know to be true. It's intentionally turning your back on. And in fact, there's only one unforgivable sin in the Bible. It's Matthew 12, 31. It says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is the concept of attributing 
to Satan the things that are in God's economy. It's the idea of knowing God's truth, turning your back on it, and attributing it to somebody else, to Satan. And so this is really the same concept, the same warning that the author here in Hebrews is telling us. And the reason I think this is that this is a good section and verse, a place for us to evaluate our salvation is that, like I said, we can rest assured if we have saving faith in Christ. But we also have to examine our hearts as we grow and we stay in our faith. We have to make sure that we've really, truly accepted Christ. Because if we have saving faith, things about us are eventually going to change. We're not saved by works. James tells us the faith without works is dead. What James is saying isn't that you're saved by works. James is saying that something about you is going to change. You're be more charitable. You're more kind. You're going to grow in your Christ-likeness. Because the reality for believers is you don't actually stop sinning. We don't stop struggling with closeness to God, and, and we don't stop slipping up. I think I said a few weeks ago our goal is to actually fall in the right direction, not fall in the wrong direction. We know we're going to fail and fall, but hopefully we do it in the right direction. But this is the idea of something in us should change. When we sin as believers, then we should feel guilty. We should be repulsed by it. Paul uses that word, talks about having hatred for sin, being repulsed by sin. We should be dr driven to a place of acknowledging it, repenting from it, asking for forgiveness, and then trying to set up safeguards from preventing us from falling into that same trap again, knowing all the while that we are forgiven. So this is why the deliberateness of this is so important to determine. Hey, have, have we claimed saving faith in Christ, yet we refuse to actually acknowledge that he's our Lord? That's a problem. If we claim one thing here, but we don't really believe it over here. Are we sinning deliberately despite the fact that we've claimed to accept him as king? If, if, if we're doing things with the intentionality of turning our back on our faith, yet pretending to be in faith, that's a problem. That's different than the sin that somebody here, all of us here, is going to commit either earlier today or before the day is over, right? That's why the sin mentioned in Matthew 12, 31, that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot, uh, will not be forgiven, can only be determined in the rearview mirror. Because there's always a chance for, for redemption, right? We know that. We are hopeful people who believe in redemption. We know that even the worst people in the world have an opportunity to turn it around. Probability and likelihood may be in different places, but that opportunity in God's economy exists. Because a true believer can make repentance from any sin, but an apostate believer can't, and they actually won't. They just won't do it. And so what this really ends up pointing to are people who are Christian in name only. And after a time, or, or when times get tough, or culture gets really pushy, they just throw in the towel, and they go back to living the way they were living before they claimed to have accepted Christ. And John MacArthur, in his commentary in Hebrews, identifies reasons that people fall into apostasy. Persecution, false teachers, temptation, neglect, and this idea of clinging to the old. And I actually think they all make total sense when you think about them. Think about it when you're persecuted. You, when you, you have an opportunity when you are persecuted or where you, when you see people who are persecuted to see where their real heart lives. Uh, this is true in my case. So when pressure gets put on or the screws get really tightened or your faith gets questioned, do I draw closer to God or do I draw farther away from God, right? Uh, false teachers. False teachers exist today and they existed then. We have spoken about this at length. A lot of them have television shows and they ask you to send them money <laughs> and promise you things with that money you're going to send them. Um, 
but, but that idea of, of coming here and not believing everything I say just because I stand up here and say it, right? That idea of using your intellect, using your discerning mind, reading, studying, asking hard questions, not blindly believing something because somebody said, you have to go believe this. And false teachers don't want you actually examining your faith or asking hard questions. And they especially don't want to answer hard questions because you'll probably stray away because what they're telling you isn't actually true. Temptation. This is true. Everybody here is temptation. tempted, right? We know that. And, and many times, the temptations of this world draw people into a deep rejection of God. The concept of being relevant, being more important than growing in holiness. Um, you, you can see this all over culture now. Not only is temptation everywhere, but it's promoted. It's encouraged. And it's, it's not just sexual temptation, which I think is what we kind of tend to think about. It's envy. It's, it's keeping up with the Joneses or trying to beat the Joneses. It's not even keeping up anymore. It's making sure we're better than the Joneses. That's temptation. That will lead you to a place that could, could easily get you into a place of rejecting God because you've made these other things your idols. You've made the sin your idol instead of keeping God in the primary focus. Neglect. If you don't water houseplants, they die. I don't water houseplants and they die. I have one houseplant that's still alive, which is amazing. Um, no, it's, it's called an airplane plant. It's, I, I can't kill a cactus. I can easily kill a cactus. Thank God I have Kristen, because we would not have all the luscious beautifulness. If, if this was just me, this would be a barren wasteland. <laughs> I do the xeriscaping thing, we just put one rock in the center of the dirt and say it's you know, really uh, water, water the one rock, exactly. Um, but if, if we neglect our faith, because sin and evil and temptation and pressure exist. If, if we neglect that, how do we expect to stay plugged into it? If we neglect to meet, if we neglect to be part of it, if ne neglect to even ask the hard questions, there's a chance we can end up turning and rejecting. And then this idea of clinging to the old, and MacArthur in his commentary actually says it better than I can. He says, holding on to the old religion or simply the old lifestyle can eventually bring a person to apostize. And, and this really was where many of these Jews were in. The, the Jews were, were trying to figure out what was taking place in Jesus, but then there's the law and there's all this pressure from the Pharisees. And it's easy to go back to the way things were because that's the way th we've always done things. Think about it in the business world, for those of you who have worked in the business world. Well, we've always done it that way. Well, just because we've always done it that way doesn't necessarily mean it's right. It doesn't also necessarily mean it's wrong. And so, for, for the fact that most of us here are not Jewish, a couple exceptions, Jared, me, at one point, um, we do have things in our life that existed before we were in deep saving faith that we'd like to hold on to. We all have those things. I have those things. And this new life of cutting off the old ways can be really scary because it is kind of dangerous to have to make these big life changes. So then we get to the end of verse 26. Can you believe we spent all this time and we're still just on one verse? You guys have no idea how long this sermon is. <laughs> just kidding. He, he tells us the consequence. He says there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And this actually makes sense because Christ died for believers. He died for the elect. He died for those who had faith in him. And so if you're apostate, not a true believer, then you're dead in your sin, which is evident from your apostasy. And his death on the cross isn't a benefit for you. So that makes sense. And that's really 
Verses 26 through 31 just expand on this. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God will judge us all. That's just a fact, because he is the perfect, all-loving God. And, And so the fact that he's going to judge us and the fact that he loves us, that he's the perfect loving God, doesn't mean that he's not going to hold us accountable for the things that we've done. Of course he is. He wouldn't be loving and kind if he didn't hold us accountable. Parents, you have to hold your children accountable. Part of being a parent and being loving and kind is holding your kids accountable. If the kids lie, there's consequences. If, if they do well, there's rewards. Part of how we love them is to hold them accountable. So God is going to hold us accountable. He will judge us. But what he's going to remind us of is even though he judges us, we're still forgiven. If we're in saving faith, we're forgiven, right? We're justified. Our sin isn't held against us. We're still accountable for what we did. But think about it this way. If you're apostate, if you know the truth and you continue to intentionally do it, there are big consequences. And the verse tells you there's even bigger consequences because of course there is. You know better. You had knowledge of the truth. And And this doesn't just apply to Christians. This concept of apostasy actually applies to churches as well. And unfortunately, right now, there are a lot of apostate churches. They claim to have faith in Jesus, but yet they reject the Bible and its teachings. This was a huge part of the reason we had to leave the church that we were at. They were all delightfully nice people, but the denomination that we were part of had rejected the authority of Scripture. How, what do you even have to stand on if you reject the authority? Well, we don't like certain parts of it. There's a lot of it I don't particularly like either. (laughs) Kids, you guys like doing homework? Exactly. Do you have to do it sometimes? Yes. Are there consequences if you don't do it? Yes. (laughs) And so uh, we, we, of course, yeah, well, (laughs) there is if you're in our school. (laughs) Oh, geez. I'm not going to touch this. I don't even know what even to say. No, nah, it's okay. I can come back on the trail fast. But part of the problem was, so this church that we belonged to, uh, or I worked at, I, they asked me to pursue ordination, which is what I'm going to be working on pursuing now through, through our biblical, the Anglican church that we're in. And, but they had asked me, and said, so great. And so I went to a meeting, uh, kind of like a pre-interview ordination meeting, and I had to submit this statement of faith. Here's what I believe. And it, first of all, it wasn't kind. I was yelled at by people over my statement of faith. And what I was yelled at, and I raised voices yelled at, was that I believe that the Bible is the authority of God, is the actual word of God. But the denomination we were in no longer believes that. Well, that's really shaky ground for a church to be in because without a robust belief of God, how can a church have a foundation to stand on? How can we as Christians, if we don't believe the Bible is God's word, have any foundation to stand on? How much more so if the body, if the whole church itself doesn't? There's actually a local Denver pastor in that same denomination that said that he does not actually believe the resurrection happened. If the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity doesn't exist. Like that's, it all hinges on that actually happening. Either Jesus did come back from the dead or he did not. And both have consequences. If he did not, then 
this doesn't really matter and it's all just kind of pretend. But if he did, it means that this is authoritative because it's an accurate representation. And I, I believe strongly through faith and, and research and evidence that he did. It, it, knowledge and wisdom. So, but can you imagine that? So this, this pastor says that to a church congregation, that's apostasy. That's a church that is an apostasy. And I think that the scary place for the apostate isn't just the punishment. It, it, it's the fact that they will suffer greater than the unbeliever. And, and we said this earlier, the reason that will happen is because they rejected what they once knew to be true. And the unbeliever will live a life riddled with anxiety and stress and, and a lack of, of peace. But the apostate lives a life of spiritual destruction at a much higher level, I think, than the unbeliever does. I think unbelievers can be in a place of spiritual destruction, but it's a different level of spiritual destruction when you turn your back. And if you want to see what this looks like, John Piper, who's a very famous Baptist pastor, wrote a lot of books. He wrote a book that was very famous called Desiring God. His website is called Desiring God. And I don't agree with everything John Piper says, but his son now has, I don't even know how many millions of followers online, and he makes predominantly on TikTok, some pretty nasty anti-Christian videos attacking the faith that he grew up in. And to all appearances, it looks like apostasy. That doesn't necessarily mean that his heart can't be turned, he can't come back, and he can repent. Of course, all of those things. But if the path that he is on continues through the rest of his life, this is leading to a place of, of spiritual destruction. And you can watch it when we watch these videos. Chris and I have watched a handful of them because there's another pastor that's kind of rebutting some of the, And some of the stuff that he says, you're just like... Where did you get that? Like your dad's a well-known Bible teacher. But what do we do with all these warnings? Should we run and be terrified? Is, is there no hope left for any of us? Is this the last outpost? I leave you with a negative message and no hope? Y'all know that's not the case. The dog is really upset about something. Amazon again. <laughs> Shouldn't be. Your shoes? I don't think the dog's mad about your shoes. No, we know this is not the case. Because, friends, we are hopeful people. And I even said that last week. Oh, wow. It's a very upset. Hmm. The dog is okay. Continue on, we shall. But last week I talked about this idea of us being hopeful people. We are people that can live joyously because of the very fact that we are hopeful people. Because if there is no hope, then there absolutely can be no joy. 32 through 39. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." For yet a little while, and the coming one will say, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Is Grace okay? Yeah, she was out. Oh, that makes sense. This is... All the people are out here, and there's probably something to bark at in the front that she wants to bark at. So... That section we just read, if we look at verse 32, the author begins with the statement, recall, which actually really means remember. He's telling us to go back and remember things. And this idea of recalling and remembering means to 
deeply remember. He's telling these Jews to go back and think deeply about what they knew to be true and what they had experienced because they were there. These people had experienced these things. So he's, he's reminding them, think deeply about your experience. Think deeply about what you, you saw, what you touched, what you, what you felt. He's telling them to leverage their experience and their knowledge, wisdom, to drive them closer to their faith, to drive them in the direction they need to go. And I think that the same actually applies to us today. We can remember, we can go back and validate what we believe to be true. We can speak with knowledgeable pastors. We can speak with other Christians. We can use this to help answer difficult questions, to talk about where our struggle is. We can mutually support one another through our church body. That's why we talked about last week, we have to gather in person. That, that idea of neglecting your faith, when we don't gather in person, we can't grow and water and help each other. And so this allows us to think back to our struggles and our sufferings, and then we can look back and see how God and our community supported us. Our community supporting us through God and how we've all been able to handle so much more than we ever thought we could. I mean, the, the author even reminds the Jews that they joyously accepted plundering of their property because they had faith in Christ. And he reminds them and us why. Because we are in possession of a better reward. And the fact uh, that we are heirs to God and his promises. It is so hard while they're playing Bohemian Rhapsody next door not to sing along with this part of the song. That is incredible. Just focus into the dog barks, Bohemian Rhapsody. It's amazing the music in the neighborhood seems to go up at about 6 o'clock on Saturday nights. But what he tells us is not to throw away our confidence because we have confidence in our faith, which provides us an amazing reward. That idea of closeness with God, the ability to persevere through anything. I've been reading a book on Psalm 23. Pardon? Maybe. Maybe. So I've been reading this book on Psalm 23. And if you haven't, The Lord is My Shepherd. It's a famous psalm. Many people have, have memorized it. And there's, there's a famous verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, the, the, the secret is, the actual true believer never walks alone, even if there's moments when you feel like you are. Christ is with us in all of our sufferings, and we don't actually lose any hope. We don't sink into pits of despair because God's with us. But for the apostate and the apostate church, there's no actually any longer hope. They, they, because the hope has been turned from God back into hoping in ourselves. And how does hoping in ourselves actually really work out? There is no such thing as a self-made person. There are gifts that have been given to you that have allowed you to succeed that God provided unique to you. But when you put all of your hope and your trust back in yourself, especially after you've received this gift of the knowledge of the truth, it never actually goes well. And this week was a rough week. I received some news, um, uh, a guy, it's a, where's Swathwood? It's an Alfredo Rowe guy, um, killed himself last month. Um, I'll, tell, I'll tell you about it afterwards. 54 years old, killed himself on his birthday. Left a wife and two kids. Three months earlier, a friend of mine, 50, killed himself. Left three kids and a wife behind. Um, this has been a, a really sad year for some friends in my age demographic, guys in my aviation community that have committed suicide. And, and I get it. I understand the pit of despair that can lead somebody to a place where they believe that suicide is their only option. But in our world of faith, we have a God that loves us and he wants to be in communion with us. He wants to bring us into his embrace, most especially when times are so hard and suffering gets so difficult because he wants to carry us. He, he, he isn't here to abandon us, uh, abandon us. He's here to love us. 
And, and what, I, what I will promise all of you, friends, is that life as a believer will be hard, but it is never so hard that this, this idea of suicide is your only option or even an option. Because no matter how painful it gets, no matter how hard it is, God loves you and he's there for you. And if any of you ever get to this place, a place of deep darkness or despair where you feel like you can't get out, your community here loves you, I love you, we will care for you, and we will help you. Because that's how we help each other. That's how we live out God's spirit, is we live that out in action, in loving one another, and caring for each other. And the reason I mentioned earlier that it is good that we evaluate our salvation isn't because we need to, to live in fear of a God that is going to smite us. It's not how it works. But we do have to be aware of where our hearts are. We, we must evaluate our hearts and ensure that they're genuine, that our faith and our love of God is genuine. And if you're struggling about that, I'm here to help you with that discernment process. If you're trying to figure out where you are in that process or if you're in saving faith, we can talk about it. That's part of what my role is as a shepherd is to help you through that. Because we have to be aware of the sincerity of our faith, not just the depth of our sin. Because remember, we are forgiven for our sin if we have faith in Jesus. Even the sin you committed today, it's not a free pass to go about and sin as you need. But it's an acknowledgement of salvation as we continue to grow in sanctification, as we continue to grow more Christ-like. A prayer that I pray, that I, it's in a, a prayer book from St. Augustine that I really like. It's just simple when I'm struggling. It says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I do believe, but there are moments where I need help with my unbelief, even though I believe. And there are moments where I will look at Chris and I'm like, are you sure that I'm saved? Like, I don't even... Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But at the same point, we should not lose sight of the seriousness for rejecting what we know to be true. But let us not also lose hope in the promises that we have as heirs of Christ's kingdom. And I actually, I think that the author's final words in this section get to bring us peace and comfort in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Family, this is the most beautiful part. We are not of those who are destroyed, but we are of those of faith. And because of this faith, our souls are preserved. But it is only preserved if we have fully responded to God's call and then accepted Christ as our Lord. We must not reject it. And we are God's people. We are his children. We are his adopted children. He loves us. He forgives us. He cares for us. And you know what the really great thing is? There is nothing that can destroy us. Nothing. There is nothing in this life that can actually hurt you. It can hurt, but it can't destroy you. Romans 8.31, it's what I have inscribed on my Apple pencil because I love this verse so much. The Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's good stuff. Let's pray.